If you have your Bibles with you, please turn in them to Luke chapter 22, verses 31 through 46. Luke chapter 22, verses 31 through 46. Jesus' earthly ministry is quickly coming to an end as he approaches the climax of his time here on earth as he will go to that Roman crucifix. So Luke chapter 22, verses 31 through 46. In this passage, Jesus concludes his, uh, Jesus and his disciples, they conclude their dinner conversation at the Last Supper or the First Supper. And they depart to go to the Mount of Olives, which was their routine. And, um, and, and, and this is the, the setting right before Jesus will be betrayed and handed over. So Luke chapter 22, verses 31 through 46. Please pay careful attention for this is God's holy and inspired word to us this morning. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And he said to them, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, Nothing. He said to them, But now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. Let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, Look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, It is enough. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. May he write this word upon our hearts this morning. Well, when you think of the topic of prayer, what comes to mind? Some of you may think of particular verses from Scripture. You may think of Paul's exhortation that we are to pray without ceasing. You may think of the Lord's Prayer, a prayer that we recite every, every Sunday, a prayer that you may recite in your home, the prayer that Christ himself taught his disciples. 
you may, you may feel a tinge of guilt that you don't pray nearly as often as you should. You may feel a tinge of guilt that you so often tell fellow brother and sisters in the Lord that you will be praying for them, but very rarely follow through. Now, I would imagine that the first thing that comes to your mind when you think of this topic of prayer is not Jesus' prayer life. I know for myself, the first thing that comes to my mind often is not Jesus' prayer life. Jesus' prayer for Peter in in this passage, Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane as he is awaiting this climactic moment when he will drink the cup of God's wrath to its dregs, or Jesus' heavenly intercession on, on our behalf as he sits at God's right hand. This, however, is the first thing that we need to think about when we uh, think about the topic of prayer. Jesus' prayer life is fundamental and central and is the foundation to our prayer life. So the first thing that should come to our our minds when we think of prayer is Jesus' prayers. Jesus' prayer life, and that serves as the foundation of our own prayer life. So that's really the main point, the main idea that I want us to consider as we go through this extended passage, that Jesus' prayer life serves as the foundation, the necessary foundation for our prayer life. Well, what I'd like us to do this morning is, first I'd like to comment on the definition of prayer. What does prayer mean according to Scripture? And then second, we're going to go through this passage and look at these two different prayer lives that we encounter. On the one hand, we encounter the prayer lives of Peter and the apostles. And on the other hand, we encounter Jesus' prayer life. So first, what do I mean when, when I speak of prayer? What does Scripture mean when, when Scripture speaks of prayer? Well, one of the reasons why I think Scripture so emphasizes the importance of prayer in the Christian life, and one of the reasons why our catechism describes prayer as the chief part of the thankfulness which God requires of us as his redeemed image bearers, the reason why prayer is is deemed so important in Scripture, in our confessions, is because literal, genuine prayer serves as a microcosm of the entire life of submission that we owe to God as His image bearers. Or to put it another way, literal prayer is symbolic or it represents the entire life of submission that we owe to God as His image bearers. Think for a moment of the posture of our hearts when we are engaged in genuine prayer. When we are engaged in genuine prayer, we are essentially confessing the creator-creature distinction. We are confessing that we are not the sovereign of our lives. We are confessing that we are not omniscient or omnipotent. And we are acknowledging one who is. We're acknowledging that God is indeed the only sovereign. We're acknowledging that God knows all things and he has all things in the palm of his hand and that everything that happens in this life proceeds from his loving fatherly hand. That's what we're acknowledging when we pray. 
we're acknowledging that his will and his priorities are more central, more fundamental than our will and our priorities. Think for a moment about the pattern of creation. I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. But in the first few chapters of Scripture, we encounter the the moral fabric and pattern and structure of creation. God as the supreme king and creator of all things of the heaven and the, the heavens and the earth, he, built, he, he, he creates mankind as his image bearers, as his vice regent, as his rulers here on earth. Mankind, Adam and Eve, were, were called to rule as God ruled, to rule as God's chosen representatives. And the object of mankind's rule was to be the rest of creation. So you have this hierarchy of God, mankind, and the rest of creation. And thus, mankind was called by virtue of creation to submit themselves to God as the supreme ruler and king of all things. What happens when they sin? Well, when Adam and Eve sin, they, in their hearts, seek to completely subvert and go against the very fabric and structure of this created universe. In that moment when they're sinning, the posture of their heart is one in which they truly believe that they are higher than God. They're elevating themselves above God and they're elevating the serpent above themselves. And so, in that moment, they, in their hearts, believe they have no need to pray to God. God's at the bottom of the hierarchy. God doesn't know what he's talking about. And if anyone's going to pray to anybody, it's God to them. That's the posture of heart that we all have when we are engaged in in sin or idolatry. We're putting God at the bottom of that hierarchy, as it were. And we are putting a created being at the top and pledging our allegiance to it. And so you can see the posture of our heart when we're engaged in sin or idolatry and the posture of our heart when we're engaged in literal prayer are completely antithetical. On the one hand, we're putting God at the bottom and serving the creation rather than the creator. But when it comes to literal genuine prayer, we're acknowledging that God is the king. And that we're in need of his providential care for us. And thus, literal prayer, again, serves as a a sort of microcosm or symbol of the entire life of submission that we owe to God every moment of our life. Literal prayer serves to represent the very fabric and order and pattern of creation that God has endowed this universe with. And so you can think of literal prayer, but then you can also think of symbolic prayer. What literal prayer represents. This life of submission and obedience we all owe to God as our creator. And so as we go through this passage, we're going to see these two different prayer lives. The prayer life of Peter and the apostles and the prayer life of Jesus. And we'll see both this literal prayer and this symbolic prayer. Meaning we're going to see these individuals literally praying and speaking their requests to God, but we're also going to see this life of submission and obedience, or lack thereof, that we owe to God as his image bearers. Well, boys and girls, you may remember that uh, the first announcement of the gospel comes in Genesis 3.15. We 
briefly talked about this this last Wednesday evening. Well, in Genesis 3.15, God announces that first promise of the gospel. That the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, albeit the serpent will bruise the heel of that seed. But notice that the first announcement of the gospel is cast in the language stock of a cosmic battle. A cosmic battle between the seed and the serpent. And so it's, it's no surprise that when we come to the gospels, we see a great battle being waged. One of the reasons why there's so much demonic and satanic activity in the Gospels is because this is the climax of that battle, of that war. The seed of the woman has become incarnate to crush the head of the serpent. So of course Satan's going to come with all of his demons against this seed. And thus there's this great cosmic battle between the seed and the serpent. But here in verses 31 and 32 we learn that this battle is not only a battle between the seed and the serpent, it's also a battle between the seed and one of uh, between the serpent and one of the seed's apostles, Peter. Look with me at verses 31 and, and 32. We read that Satan demands to have Peter so that he may sift him like wheat. Now there are three indicators here in these verses that Satan is after Peter for a particular purpose. He wants to utterly destroy the faith of Peter. Exterminate the faith of Peter. That's his intention. And there are three indicators in these verses that that show us that this is Satan's specific purpose. You'll see first that that Satan is explicitly asking for Peter. And he wants to sift Peter as one would sift uh, wheat through a sieve. He wants to sift Peter. And the English, the the idiom of this phrase as it would come out in, in English would be something like utterly taking someone apart. This is Satan's intention. Destroying Peter and his spiritual life. And we are reminded in Revelation 12 that Satan is the great accuser of the brethren. So this this imagery of, of, of Satan sifting Peter like wheat tells us that Satan wants to destroy Peter's faith. But second, notice that Jesus says in verse 32, But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Now what is the implication there? The implication there is that Satan is trying to cause Peter's faith to utterly fail. He wants to snuff out Peter's faith like you would blow out a candle. And boys and girls, when you have a birthday, you might have candles and a cake and you take a big breath and you blow. And your intention is to make sure all of those candles are out. And this is what Satan's trying to do to Peter's faith. Completely blow out the, 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 the flame of, of Peter's faith. Well, the third indicator that we have here is Jesus' address to Peter. Notice that in verse 31, he says, Simon, Simon. He doesn't call him Peter. Now, back in chapter 5, we learn that Jesus, when he was calling Peter, gave Peter the name Peter. Before he was just Simon, and then once he became a disciple and apostle, he became Simon Peter. So ever since chapter 5, 
Peter has been known to us as Simon Peter. But here, Jesus doesn't refer to him by this new name, Simon Peter. He only refers to him by his previous name, Simon Simon. Now, many commentators think that this is suggestive of the fact that Satan is after Peter's identity as an apostle and disciple and follower of Christ. Peter's new name, Simon Peter, was bound up with his identity as an apostle and a disciple. And Satan is after that identity. He wants to utterly remove that identity from Peter. And cause him to just be Simon again. And this portrayal of Satan here in these verses are very similar to the portrayal we have of, of Satan in Job 1 and 2. You recall in Job 1 and 2, Satan is, is, is the one who comes in the presence of God's heavenly courtroom, as it were, and asks if he can sift Job's faith, as he is requesting to sift Peter's faith here in this passage. Well, this spiritual warfare, this battle, as I mentioned, is a battle between the seed, the serpent, and the serpent's apostle. I mean, the the serpent and the seed and the seed's apostle. But it's broader than this. This is actually a warfare that entails not only the rest of the apostles, but the entire Christian church. The entire Christian church. Now, verse 31, you'll, you'll see that Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you. Now, in the original Greek language, this you is in the plural. So really, it reads, Simon, Simon, Satan demanded to have you all. Or if you're the wits, y'all, right? (laughs) You all. But in verse 32, he goes back to the singular use of the second person uh, pronoun. This seems to indicate, in verse 31, that... There's a broader reference here than just Peter when he says Satan demanded to have you all. Furthermore, Peter, the same Peter who is here listening to the words of Jesus, writes his own epistles to the Christian church, average lay Christians. And in 1 Peter chapter 5, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 through 9, Peter says this. And listen to the similarity between what Peter says in 1 Peter 5 and what is said here in this passage. Peter says, again, to these various Christian churches, he says, Be sober-minded and be watchful, for your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Therefore, stand firm in your faith. Peter seems to, have picked, uh, seems to have picked up on what Jesus was, was saying here in that this adversary is not just after the seed, Jesus, not just after the apostles, but the entire Christian church. And therefore this battle is a battle that includes us. We see within this battle that we will have many stumblings. We're going to fall. We're going to sin. We will have many seeming, uh, seemingly many defeats in this battle that's waged against this ancient serpent. For instance, if you look at verse 32b, 
And Jesus says, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Now this, this phrase, when you have turned again, is just a common word that's used throughout the book of Luke and Acts to refer to repentance. Confessing our sins, turning away from our sins. And Jesus is saying, and when you have repented and turned to strengthen and edify your brothers. What does this assume? Well, this assumes that Peter will stumble, will fall, will sin, and will have need to repent and confess his sins. Furthermore, in verses 33 and 34, we read Peter responding to these statements of Jesus by saying, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow three to- uh, will not crow this day until you deny me three times. Right? Peter is so eager to suffer and even die with his Lord, but yet Jesus says in a matter of hours, you will deny me three times. This shows us that there will be many seeming, seemingly many defeats in this battle. We're going to stumble. We're going to fall. We're going to have need of repentance. Perfectionism is not possible in this life for Peter or for us. We will be engaged in the same kind of hypocrisy that Peter was engaged in. The truth, the orthodoxy that we confess with our mouths are denied each and every day in our lives, in the way we live, is it not? If And so we, the, the question that comes to mind is, if we're in this battle, if it's a given that we will fall, we will stumble, we'll be engaged in, in hypocrisy where we deny in our lives the things that we confess with our mouths, what gives us comfort, what gives us confidence in the midst of this warfare? What gives us confidence, what gives us comfort that we will not be overcome in this spiritual battle and warfare that we all are engaged in? Well, the answer to that question comes in Jesus' prayer life. Jesus' prayer life. Again, we see in verses 31 through 32, Jesus saying, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded you, uh, demanded to have you all that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Jesus prays for Peter. And this foreshadows for us that heavenly intercession that Jesus will be engaged in when he leaves this earth and, and ascends to his Father in heaven. Jesus here assumes that Peter's faith will not fail in verse 32b. Because he says, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. The assumption is is that Peter will not ultimately apostatize. Yes, he will deny his Lord, but he will be restored. He will repent. He will come back to the fold, as it were. Why? Why can Jesus be so sure that Peter will repent, that he will not ultimately apostatize? Well, it's because... Jesus has prayed for him. That's the reason. That's the reason that Jesus can be so confident that Peter will repent. Jesus prays for him. He prays for him. And this also tells us that Jesus' prayers are always efficacious, meaning they always come to pass. Jesus prays for Peter, and as a consequence... 
Jesus prays for Peter that his faith would not fail. As a consequence, his faith does not fail. He repents. He comes back in, 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 in sorrow and penance to his Father in heaven. And so this tells us that Jesus' prayers are always efficacious. They always come to pass. Why? Because Jesus' prayers always conform perfectly to the Father's will. Our prayers don't always come to pass because our prayers don't always conform to God's will. That's why we say, your will be done. Yes, we can pray the desires of our hearts, but we ultimately say, your will be done. But Jesus' prayers always and perfectly conform to God the Father's will, and thus they always come to pass. So this teaches us that Jesus' prayers are efficacious. Now we might think to ourselves, well, that's good news for Peter, but this passage, especially verse 32, does it say anything about Jesus praying for us, for you and for me? So what confidence, what comfort do we take in the midst of this spiritual warfare? Again, thankfully, the Bible is one unified book, and so we can look to other verses and passages that illuminate um, particular texts. Romans chapter 8, verse 34, the Apostle Paul speaks some wonderful news of comfort. In Romans chapter 8, verse 34, at the end of this, this wonderful passage, Paul says, uh, says this. He says, who is, to condemn? who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised and who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Paul is connecting both aspects of Jesus' priestly ministry. What he's saying is that all for those whom Christ died for, Christ will be praying for. Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than that, who was raised and is interceding for the people of God. Christ prays for every single person that he died for. He Paul connects those two aspects of his priestly ministry. And so, if you believe firmly that when Christ was hanging on that cross, he had you in mind, that Christ, as we'll see later on in the passage, drank the full cup of God's wrath that your sins earned, if you believe that, then you also should believe that Christ is right now interceding for you at the right hand of God. In fact, he lives to intercede for you, as Hebrews chapter 7 tells us. So if Christ died for us, he lives to intercede for us, to pray for us. This is then the reason why we can have confidence that we will not be overcome in this spiritual warfare. Confidence that Satan will not sift our faith like wheat. Confidence that our faith will not fail because Jesus prays for us. Our confidence does not reside in the strength of our will or in our moral capabilities but in our Savior who died, and more than that, who is at the right hand of God, interceding for you, interceding for me, interceding for the church. That's the basis of our confidence. Now, I would imagine there's many Christians throughout the history of the church who have not known about this reality. Maybe they knew that Jesus died for them, but they, they didn't know that Jesus lives at the right hand of God to intercede for the people of God. This reality, then, of Jesus praying for his people is objectively true whether we know it or not. It's objectively true whether we know it or not. And like I said, I imagine a lot of people, faithful saints, have died without being ignorant of this reality. But nevertheless, Jesus was praying for them. 
However, if we fail to remember this reality, if we are ignorant of this reality, we're missing out on so much comfort. Think for a moment if you are anticipating a, a big event, an event that you are anxious about, and the morning of that event you have a dozen text messages that come in from people, family, church family, saying they're praying for you. Now, whether they, those individuals tell you that they're praying for you or not, their prayers are objectively happening. It's not as if your, your um, recognition of their prayers make them more efficacious. No, but you knowing that people are praying for you gives you comfort. It gives you comfort, and that's really the motivation why we tell other people that we're praying for them in such occasions, because we know it's comforting to know that we have people praying on our behalf. In the same way, the reason why Scripture communicates this point about Jesus praying for his people at the right hand of God is for our comfort. This is true whether we know it or not. Our knowing it doesn't make it true. It's true regardless. But the reason why Scripture wants to communicate it to us is for our comfort. How comforting it is to know that fellow sinners who pray imperfectly are praying on our behalf. How much more comforting is it to know that the God-man who sits at God's right hand, whose prayers always come to pass, is praying for your faith. How comforting is that? And this is a promise that we are called to latch on to, to call to mind often for our assurance and for our com comfort and for our confidence in the midst of, of this spiritual warfare in which we are engaged in. And thus you can see here in this passage that Jesus' prayer life serves as the foundation, the foundation for not only Peter's prayer life, but the prayer life of the entire Christian church. And, and I'm using prayer in this sense in that symbolic way. Our life of submission and obedience. Jesus' prayer life, His literal prayer, serve as the foundation for our submission and obedience. The sustaining of our faith during this pilgrimage. And so we're just going to consider the first uh, part of this passage. Uh, next, next time we will look at part two of this theme of this passage. And we'll see how Jesus in his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane illustrates the same point. How his prayer life serves as this foundation for our literal and symbolic prayers. But remember, remember that Jesus' prayer life serves as a foundation for our prayer life. And that's where we need to begin when we think about prayer. The only reason why submission, the only reason why literal prayers are even possible in this life is because of what Jesus has done in both aspects of his priestly ministry. He died and is interceding. And that's where our faith needs to rest. And so let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give thanks for uh, your Son, Jesus Christ, who not only lived on our behalf, not only died in our place, but all, also is right now praying for us. Oh Lord, how comfortable.